Welcome to Northern Static, the show where Canadian composers tell us about the state of their art. I'm bassist and composer Pete Johnston, coming to you from downtown Canada. On this show, I talk to composers from a range of musical scenes to find out how they make their music, why it sounds the way it does, and most importantly, what they think we should be listening for when we hear it. In this episode, I talk to Edmonton-born, Toronto-based composer Martin Arnold. Martin's work brings together people and sounds from the new music, folk, and jazz scenes in idiosyncratic and compelling ways. Our discussion was as wide-ranging as the influences he knits together in his music. Martin Arnold, coming up on Northern Static. Welcome to Episode 5 of the show. The concept for the show is simple. I sit down and talk with composers about their creative processes and they play some compositions of their choice as examples of what they do. Think of it as a group listening session, where the creator of the music is there to guide us through how and why they make the music they do. Today's episode is an extended ramble through space and time with composer and listener Martin Arnold. As you will hear, Martin has more music on mental recall than it seems possible to listen to in a lifetime. He is a prodigious collector of recordings and a remarkably erudite orator when it comes to describing the sounds in which he is interested. I met Martin in 2004 when I was working on my master's degree at York University. His name kept coming up as I interviewed improvisers on the Toronto scene, so I eventually got around to arranging a conversation with him. Before we made it through our first ever beer together, we discovered a shared love of the music of Carla Bley, Paul Bley, and Jimmy Jufri, a confluence of tastes that became the foundation for a lasting friendship. This first meeting turned out to be a life-changing encounter for me, as Martin quickly became, and remains, a musical mentor for me who has shaped the music I make in the most profound ways. Not only can I not imagine what my music would sound like if I hadn't met Martin, I can't imagine starting a composition project without talking it through with him first. To add to my good fortune, Martin was adjunct faculty at York at the time, so he was able to serve on my master's and PhD committees, providing the support and guidance that is necessary for making it through graduate school. Martin is a deep listener with insightful and often provocative ideas about what is meaningful in music. As far as I can tell, any and all conversations with him lead one through a remarkable maze of musical associations and references that leaves one feeling on one hand that one doesn't know as much as one thought one did about music, and on the other, hungry to follow the breadcrumbs he sprinkles liberally along the way. If you've not had the pleasure of sitting across a table from Martin in person, I recommend you simulate the experience wherever you are by having one more beer than it would be responsible to drink close at hand, and perhaps some kind of meat and cheese plate within arm's reach. A pen and some paper also helps, as Martin always talks about music that one hasn't heard before in a way that makes you want to hear it, and it can be hard to remember all the names he drops. As a final tip, perhaps clear your schedule for the following morning to allow for some recovery time. I speak from experience on this one, folks. Before we get into things with Martin, I need to apologize for the sounds of my downtown Toronto neighborhood that you can hear loud and clear in the background throughout this episode. My producer seems to have forgotten to close the window in the studio, and the engineer didn't have the skills to dial back the sounds of birds, dogs, trains, and general urban construction. I hope listeners can hear their way through the commotion enough to attend to Martin's commentary. A further housekeeping note is that the second musical example Martin brought along, the 38-minute piece Tam Lin, has been abbreviated in the interest of time. I don't like to shorten compositions on this show about composition, but as the full piece is available on Martin's SoundCloud page, he gave me permission to privilege the discussion in my editing. 
As we like to do on the show, we'll start with some music to provide some sonic context for the discussion. Here's an excerpt from Martin Arnold's piece, Slip Minuet, performed by violinist Mira Benjamin. Martin Arnold, composer, reformed bassist, virtuoso, whammy, melodica player. Welcome to the show. Happy to be here. When did you start composing? It's a little bit of a little bit of a blur exactly what happened when, but what I mean the the big thing was that uh, I wasn't a musician at all up until the su- summer between grade ten and grade eleven. This was in Edmonton, Alberta. So I was 15, about to turn 16. I, I had played a little bit of bass guitar in, in like soft pop bands uh, just because I had friends doing that. But it, it wasn't really something I was... Just 10cc covers over seri- uh, No Christian pop. Oh, yeah. That kind of soft. The softest, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I mean, it wasn't like I, I, I thought of that as getting into music, you know. And I, you know, I would listen to, well, Joni Mitchell and Neil Young on the on the less embarrassing side, but, you know, America and Neil Diamond and Carol King and all of that stuff. I mean, but, but again, with not with any kind of real commitment, it's not like I, I knew things about America or was, were awaiting their, their next release and things like that. It was just, you know, it was nice background music. And I, I, that soft pop was definitely my style. Gordon Lightfoot, it could be a little folk here, but even there, it wasn't like what folk music is to me now. Uh, and then a friend lent me a whole bunch of albums. Cecil Taylor, New York City R&B with... So wait a second, you went from Gordon Lightfoot to Cecil Taylor? Well, no, this is a loner. He said, here, uh, listen to these. That was one of them. Charles Mingus Candid Recordings with Eric Dolphy.
and Gentle Giant Octopus. They're coming over Chariton Bridge. Look, do you see the man who is poor bridge? What do you wish and where do you go? Where do you go? Where are you? Where are you from? Will you tell me your name? Rest a while, call me your friend. Please stay with me, I'd like to Collectively, they really blew my mind. I mean, in a, in a kind of a quasi-psychedelic way. And, and, and weirdly, actually, the thing that went with it, too, is I, I, I had I had Weather Report's Sweet Nighter, which I had bought when it came out. So, you know, that would have been, I think, 73 or something. So I, I was in junior high, and I just didn't... It was weird. I'd, I'd heard something of it in the, the record store and bought it, like, really just on a lark. to it once and put it away but it 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 really came to the fore after being lent these albums too weather report retroactively made sense yeah i mean it's still it's still one of my favorite albums i mean it's i think it's the last really wonderful thing they did i mean there's gonna say maybe bits of mysterious traveler are okay but even there it's a bit of a stretch but sweet nighter i think is their best album I didn't know that at the time, though, because I didn't know anything. But uh, anyway, what happened then is I, I really tried to um, reinvent myself as a musician. And it, it was funny. It wasn't so much that I, I wanted to do what they were doing. Like, it wasn't that, you know, boy, I really want to play now because I, you know, heard great players. It, it just seemed like a, a remarkable world to be in. And, and then I had friends who were musicians, so maybe it was also like jumping in there a little bit more. But then it became really clinical. Like I, I decided that I, I wanted to, to get into a Bachelor of Music program at U of A. It just seemed like when I was thinking about what to do with university, it seemed like the way to go. And, and, and I didn't really have anything. So like even though I played a little bit of bass guitar, part of the reason I started going on bass was because I found out that they hardly had any bass players and that was a chronic problem for them. So I thought, <laughs> okay, I, I could really suck at this and still potentially say that this is my instrument. One of my musical friends was a, a fine piano player. I got him to start teaching me grade eight piano because that was another requirement. And uh, that turned out funny because I, I basically, over two years, just learned the four pieces I had to learn. Now, this actually becomes apropos to why I'm a composer though too, but the, the, you know, the four tunes I had to learn and a little bit of the technique, but I, I passed in the, in the, adjudicator was flummoxed because she thought the, the playing of the four pieces was extremely good and and the kind of uh just you know okay now do this in thirds you know these scales right. not, not do it i mean i could kind of do that a bit but i just never really practiced so i would hack at that and she was just sort of flummoxed that you could actually you know play bach and not be able to do a contrary motion scale without screwing up um but so i got that and then i got i got the band teacher at my high school to find a way for me to get three years or three yeah three years of uh, music credits in two years 
and one of the things he did was actually bring in a string program so that I could also get a little bit of teaching on on bass. I mean, he was a guy named Larry Shrum. He originally from the States, incredibly fine big band jazz drummer, well-educated guy. And he, yeah, he got me into a lot of stuff too. But, you know, I started playing bass and stage band as, and bad percussion and some string bass and concert band and then doing the theory, like one-on-one -on -one course with him. Started taking bass lessons first with Peter Mark, who is the principal with Edmonton Symphony. So I had serious bass teacher, teachers trying to make something out of me in, in a couple of years. Bass was kind of a way to get into school? Yeah. And and then, but you know, I, jazz had been a, a big part of why I, I got into music and what I was thinking of as advanced music then and, and prog rock. Bass was a way for me to get out of school. <laughs> Because I, I started playing saxophone and I had all these jaw problems, so I had to switch instruments. And they were going to make me have to do four years on that instrument. Right. So I would have had to do two extra years of just bass lessons and recitals and stuff to be able to graduate. Wow. So I enrolled in composition and that got me out of doing that. So that's why I did composition. Well, I, <laughs> it was, I, I mean, I had a hard time getting out of school because of the bass. Yeah. I mean, it was sort of similar though in some ways in terms like except that I couldn't play like but but the composition thing too I mean I knew I could never really go in as a as a bass performance major either so it wasn't that composition was completely out of the blue because I had already you know I, I really did think of Gentle Giant as composition I mean the, the pitches aren't very interesting but there's a lot of you know it's, it's pretty hyperthyroid compared to other prog bands and a lot of inter interlocking rhythms that turn me on but then I guess with I guess with both Cecil Taylor, well Cecil Cecil Taylor, that was a harder thing for me. It was more just the oddness of it, the dissonance of it. So that it was sort of a gateway drug for modernism. Eventually, with Mingus, again, seemed very serious to me composition wise, but I didn't know what to make of it. Uh, Ralph Towner, though, because I mean, I, in all of these, like I just started buying records like crazy too. Like I mean, this is the other thing that I still do mercilessly as I just buy recordings. And at the end of the day, listening to recorded music is still the thing I do the most and care about the most musically, for sure. I mean, it's the, it's the thing, it's the only thing I wouldn't ever stop doing if I had to. But I, I thought Ralph Towner's compositions for Oregon and then the, you know, stuff that came out on ECM, I thought, I thought those were remarkable, like those, heads were remarkable heads. And then because of Paul Blay, I got sort of sideways into Carla Blay. And so she was huge for me. I mean, this is already though, maybe first year for Carla Blay. I think I started listening to her in first year university. so much about when I bought the records actually more than school versus uh, university but the, I mean the point is is I, I already had it in my mind that I, I would need to be a composer more out of again just wanting to be a musician and realizing mm -hmm. that that was something where actually figuring out 
how to how to uh, evaluate it was much mushier. Mm. And I and I did get a year of lessons with Violet Archer, who had just retired from U of A, who was senior Canadian composer, had studied in Toronto, mm. was kind of a major figure in in Edmonton. So I was, you know, learning some dissonance that way too. I think though, in terms of the the stuff where I felt like things kind of came together though it was actually this um Ravel prelude it was it was the modern composition for the grade eight piano great <laughs> conservatory piano and it was just this two-page note against note piece of Ravel's like where basically all of that modal but you know slightly modulating modal impressionistic thing he did was distilled into two voices and and I still think it's a an amazing piece of music and and I mean, it, it was a it was a really big deal when I realized, hey, wait a minute, you know, someone could write a, a piano piece that I can play, and it still it still absolutely gets under my skin as much as any of the virtuoso jazz or right. rock that I was. So it into. doesn't need to be virtuosic. And exactly. Yeah. I mean, and so that 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 really was uh, vindicated the decision that that it wasn't really just trying to take part in music. That composition wasn't just a default. That it was something to really pursue. And 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 then and then it, I think it also was maybe because it was really just wanting to take part. And that was the other thing about composition somehow too. That seemed. I mean, I don't think everyone thinks this, but it, it seemed a little bit clearer than playing something where you're trying to work up to a standard or emulate your hero heroes. Like I did feel like with composition, you were just trying to add something to the conversation that that wasn't redundant. And like I say, of course, you know, there, I think there's a whole virtuoso school of composition that very much wants to sound like Mahler Jr. But I mean, that wasn't my that wasn't my impetus. I just I just wanted to do just something that would take part. And for me, even taking part meant, could I actually write music that I would want to hear as much as the recordings I was buying? And not because it was better or as good, but just because, you know, this was just burgeoning. It, it's just that it, it, it added something else that wasn't redundant to all of all of this other music that I was bringing in. What was the impetus to be involved in, in music then? Oh, it just, I mean, it was almost like a, I mean, you know, I, I was a born again Christian at the time. So I'm, I, I'm, and it, that was a very psychedelic experience. But this idea of of uh, having these crazy events that utterly change the direction of your life was something I, I guess I was prone to. Without it being like charismatic ecstatics of the kind of Christianity I was into, it it was still like this thing where where all of a sudden something that I thought I knew music, I mean you know on some level, all of a sudden paying attention to this stuff really blew me away and I, and I think it, it it was just that idea that it was such a profound difference in the fabric of it in terms of how I felt that it uh, enlarged my my perspective even if, if it wasn't in kind of a concrete 
you know, ideological way. I mean, maybe it was enjoying that it wasn't ideological too, you know, which went with the Christianity. But I mean, at that time it was subsumed by it in a way. But I think, I think it was just that sense of, of like a world where you were really attending to music. It, it, made, it made the rest of the world more interesting too somehow. It just seemed like, it just seemed like as, as something to be a, a major focus of, of what you study, what you talk about, what you share, what you do. It just seemed it just seemed far more um, exciting and and unknowable than what I was going to be before, which was going to be a high school English teacher. And I mean, you know, I probably made a horrible mistake because I, I I love teaching and I still have trouble getting a, a gig doing that as a music teacher of one sort or another. But you know, I guess that was it though. There was still the sense, even being a high school English teacher, it was like, yeah, okay, literature is pretty cool. There's all of this history and and stuff and you can get really lost in a book but but compared to the how altered and other the experience was when i started attending carefully to music at that point i was just it was just a far more profound difference in that i just wanted more of that and less of other things that weren't as uh, stimulating sounds like you had some weird friends too to bring weird records that was strange though too because the guy who actually lent me them i don't even know if he was into them that much he he was a another piano player who i knew from the church but then they fed into me starting to go to this record store and that there was a unbelievably great record store in edmonton it started as a bunch of weirdos who had um, kind of covertly changed all the ordering practices of Opus 69 Records, which was a Vancouver-based company. So they made this weird, strange, little, strange music boutique out of it until the people from the head office came and went, what the hell are you doing, and fired them all. <laughs> and then one of them, though, was able to kind of sneak into Students' Union Records at the University of Alberta, and then he started hiring everyone else from Opus, and, and actually eventually me part-time when I when I got into BMUS. Yeah, there was about a eight-year period there where Students Union Records in Edmonton was really one of the very best record stores on the planet ever. I wow. mean, and so much of my collection was based on what I could buy there. And, you know, everyone was into something slightly different, weird, like everything from British invasion uh, folk music to, to jazz to dub to free improv. I mean, there was a, a write-in campaign from small European labels when the students' union, you know, closed it down finally. People like Hans Reichel and and uh, Chris Cutler from Recommended were writing and saying, you can't do this, you know, like what other what other store anywhere has all of Ictus records from <laughs> Rome and in, you know, every number of them didn't matter. The it was in the mall and it was they were able to ask bigger rent, so they got an A and W in there. Nourishing in a different way. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about early composing efforts. So out of all this listening, what were you getting up to? It was pretty unfocused at, in a way. I, I had, a, I did have a great teacher my last two years at U of A, um, amazing composer named Alfred Fisher, who really sadly just passed away last year, much younger than he should have. He had studied a bit with George Crumb. He had studied piano with uh, David Burge, who was one of the main performers of new music in the States. So Alfred knew a lot of stuff. I mean, I was just, yeah, like I said, I was buying a lot. I guess the, the favorites, the ones who weren't 
sort of involved with jazz were people like George Crumb and early Peter Maxwell Davies when he was still doing processes on, on early music, like late medieval and early Renaissance music. It tended to be stuff that was pretty resolutely chamber music, although I was listening to Messiaen too, but, but more of the piano music there. Like, unlike some of my friends, who, for instance, you know, who heard, you know, Penderecki or Ligeti of that time and started doing like kind of mass clouds of sound best they could, or, I mean, this was pre, really before repetition music hit. I, maybe by the my fourth year, you know, there, there was enough Steve Reich around that a few people were doing that, but I, it wasn't so much a style I was after, although I, there, there, there would always be, I think, I think what there was about it is that there was always some kind of reference to a, another kind of music, whether it was um, some kind of dream nocturne or, or early music. I mean, early music was the thing I discovered first year undergrad that was still, or is still a huge passion. And, and, and it was the thing. Like vocal music? Yeah, but, it, you know, it was back... I mean, the things we were listening to, though, was also Troubadour and Trouverse. I mean, it, this was right in... Uh, it was still mostly people like um, David Munro's uh, early music consort and uh, the Waverly Consort out of Boston. It was still, like, people kind of dressing up in garb and hitting tambours and a lot of crumb horns. And <laughs> so it, it was kind of a hodgepodge. Again, by, by my fourth year we were getting all these reflex albums in with like studio and fine music, Thomas Binkley's group. So people who were a little bit more studious about it and less about doing early music as just sort of like a <laughs> LARPing. Yeah. Hey, naughty, naughty kind of you know, party, but, um, but, but, you know, it was, every, but it was all of it. I mean, it was even up into the broke stuff, which was fairly modern performances, but it was just, it, it, it was just that it was the idea of modality, I think versus, dramatic tonality uh like the modality was something i i could come out of jazz and and yet to hear it with that kind of focus where the you know whether it was dowland's consort music or a dufay motet like just to hear those lines kind of circling on each other or even you know some of the flatter baroque music like corelli which is still major musician for me but you know where, where like there was fast and slow in Corelli, but it never really seemed dramatic. And it, and it seemed more about different proportions than it was about any kind of narrative arc or, or build. Like things just changed. They didn't seem to juxtapose so much. And it was all kind of pleasant. And then you would get things like, you know, the Pasacalia at the end of the Christmas Concerto. That, again, it was just this sort of looping thing that would just kill me. So, you know, it was, and I, and I guess maybe it was also, I was always attracted to work that was sort of in between a, a hint of, a hint of tonality, but it sort of put on its head. So, so Messian for sure. And then, uh, late Stravinsky, which was a little bit medievalist as well. Um, more than the early stuff at that time, certain pieces by Benjamin Britten, which still matter a lot to me. And I mean, the thing with a lot of the American music that was coming out on, on Nonsuch and Turnabout, like, like, you know, labels that had crumb, but then people, people don't really know so well anymore, like Richard Vernick. And I mean, there, there was a lot of people who were doing very colorful music that didn't really have a, an agenda, but was sort of in between a, a kind of a tonal thing and then just a coloristic gestural thing. Some William Bolcom, some Albright, Paul Chiara. It, it, it was, I guess the and I guess the other thing about them, I mean, a lot of this music I wouldn't stand by at all anymore. It's just 
it's just a gestural mess. But I, mm-hmm. I liked I liked I like things where other music was quoted in a way because I, I I like that thing in in Crumb or Davies where in the middle of these sort of ponderous pieces you might get a bit of a Chopin nocturne or a bit of a, a Dunstable motet and mm. actually trying to focus on where the music was became hard because in a way it was like there was this other music being played in this dream of other music and this sort of idea that of this kind of removal of attention or broadening of attention where you were trying to put your finger on like where's the music uh, I found I found that yeah. interesting it you know but looking back I mean a lot of that stuff is just so does it so theatrically it's a little hard for me to listen to now but I, I think in terms of values it's still you know there's still stuff I carry from that and then folk music is such a huge part of what you do now. Tell me about that, how that came into it. That came late and it came, in terms of composition, it came from getting getting a handle on processes that uh, that more came from the early music uh, thing, but a way of dealing with melody and, and modality that could then also draw on that body of work too. I mean... It was, I mean, it was huge, for, huge for me early on in undergrad. I mean, it was another thing. Like, there was just a lot of music I was buying that I wouldn't, for a minute, try and emulate in my own practice. British folk revival stuff, um, June Tabor, early Steel Eyes Span, Pentangle, Martin Carthy. All of those people, they were a big deal. I mean, and progressively through undergrad were a big deal, but I, I would have never, I mean, that just seemed like music, like perfect music to me. It never occurred to me to, to somehow draw on it then. I mean, it was weird. So I, you're only emulate imperfect music? What I try and do is only do what I think I can do. And I mean, a lot of those early <laughs> musics, those early pieces are pretty painful, but I mean, it was strange. They... They, they were long. There was still this idea I had that, you know, if you could build up enough listening context, a lot of different things could happen and you wouldn't know why. But I didn't know how to make anything continue. Like that was the big thing that even compared to too early music, I could only kind of hint at it like Davies quotation. I could I just had no idea how to really embrace it as as a way of dealing with pitch mm-hmm. and rhythm that came really late. So, I, I mean, I, I pretty much went through my whole undergrad and then experience in Banff doing these long but really really fragmented pieces that just they were crazy I mean they had the weirdest instruments and strange little moments of stuff but I didn't know how to make anything continue so I just kept piling it on now would you call that an issue of process like understanding yeah the idea of making something continue is to yeah, have it, a process to plug it into I think at its core it was technique I mean you know like I wasn't thinking that clearly about this stuff when uh, when I was in the throes of it. I mean, I was painfully aware that there was things I wish I knew how, how to continue and couldn't. It never occurred to me that there could be a, a system or a methodology or a technique, because I, th- I think there was something still, uh, I think this is still a bit of, a bit pervasive in a lot of uh, North American music teaching, that there's, there is something numinous about composing where you're just sort of, it's you and the page and you're sort of looking at it and, wrestling with you know your muse kind of thing i mean the thing that helped that a lot was i spent a year in holland ostensibly studying with louis andreessen i mean he was right when he was becoming a superstar so he wasn't around a lot but i mean he was still there and i mean with him you would he would just want you to come with a few chords and then make a piece out of a few chords but i was also working more with uh, Helius van Berghijk 
mostly an electronic composer, but one who just used that as a, a means. I mean, he, he, in terms of process and systems and an incredible sense of music history, he was incredible. And I, I mean, and I didn't really though know what to do with it at the time. Like I was still writing these colorful pieces that all the American guest students liked and all the Dutch pointed and made fun of. So I also had a, about a year long writer's block, uh, mostly hung out with, with people studying early music, which, which helped. And then, and then bringing bits and pieces that I could uh, eke out to Achilles. But so that, after that, I started my master's in Victoria. But early on, because I, I, I knew I had to stop the writer's block, I think there was a few things. I think they weren't until Victoria. Though. I don't think I bothered writing anything at the end of my stay in Holland. But I tried to do stuff almost as uh, defiantly, like just do some stupid uh, quasi-minimalist chord piece, you know, that just used sustaining things and, and voice leading in a simple way. And then, uh, I mean, not that that really gave me a methodology, but, but what it did do, though, it made me a little less, I think, uh, against the idea, like as opposed to, you know, feeling like you just had to somehow sweat it out in a studio grappling with what it is to make a piece. I mean, I did these things that were almost like kind of, flipping the bird studies and it was like, well, well actually that sounds okay to me, you know, and just, you know, try, try to, to deal with things around form in a more clinical systematic way, like, you know, draw proportions, things like that. That was the start of it. But even there, like even through most of my stay in Victoria, even those, that kind of thing would still get swallowed up by big colorful pieces. It wasn't really till I was here and started dealing with systems around uh, melody and, and, even rhythm, that stuff started to open up some more. So what about the systems? Can you take me through it a little bit? Well, the the corker, I mean, Louis wasn't so much about systems as consistencies, and he was about proportion, like 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 the idea of having rhythm, you know, things that are happening on big formal rhythms happen in smaller parts of the piece. So, and I think he kind of got that from Stockhausen a bit, but then really kind of cleared it out. And then the other thing he was about, though, was this sort of, quasi-modal harmony but where where sheer voice leading would move it and and Mm. and you didn't do a whole lot else with that so that was that was big in terms of the the system that actually stuck i didn't do i didn't use it in victoria at all but i guess i did discover it in holland i think this was really me discovering again the thing i never lost touch with was listening and i didn't have my collection with me in holland so i would just plunder the um the library and discovered this album by Per Nergard, a Danish composer a bit older than Louis, called Voyage into the Golden Screen and Iris. And the and the cover is a was a spiral showing the Infinity series that he used for the Voyage into the Golden Screen. And at the time, it was like yeah, whatever. But I mean, again, really beautiful music. And it was right when he was sort of in between this kind of quasi repetition cellular music coming out of how he used the infinity series but also just intonation i mean
I mean, anyway, it was really beguiling music. So I sort of stuck with that. But I mean, I, at the time, I, the idea of using something like the Infinity series also wasn't, I don't know, it wasn't that appealing. Anyway, I got through my master's with two really huge, again, ponderous pieces, like where there'd be... Like orchestral pieces? No, like, no, like for... I mean, then this was sort of a, like, I guess a Louis thing where he would just invent these big ensembles. But my, my master's piece was for recorders, one player playing multiple recorders, viola da gamba, rebec, oboe, flute, string quartet, I think melodica, three prepared pianos and then lots of latin percussion and tape and it goes on for an hour and 20 minutes and there's like made these major pseudo afro-cuban trance rhythm things like that'll just happen and then it'll shut down and be big clanging chords and it was all thought all the rhythms were related through the golden section and i mean but it was a mess so i mean i was still doing stuff like that when i got into my phd Things settled down a bit. I think I got the hang of trying to strip down how much I did, but I didn't really have a methodology. So often there, I would things would just go up or down. Music got a bit stiller. I think I, the expanse of these pieces it was finally beaten out of me. That that kitchen sink, you know, every you know a million sparkly sounds going at once. I just couldn't take it anymore. Unless I just made it still, I I still wasn't great at making things continue. And then. I mean, this was this was still years, years before I finished my PhD because my PhD graduating composition was something that I I'm still very happy with. But it comes actually after things that happened in Toronto. Again, I wrote another big, long, ponderous piece, but you know, with like with reed organs and hurdy gurdy, uh, and a lot of it was a mess. But then, like again, after about forty five minutes of this, I just I wrote this tag to it, which I saw as going to be more of a kind of a coda. And it, and it used the Infinity series, and it kind of a longer cell than your guard would ever use. Anyway, I, I hated this piece, and I had another about a year of, of a block, but this... You were this, broken by your own piece? Yeah, one, one more time. <laughs> but uh, uh, it was just this, uh, this tag to it though, that I kept listening to it, and I realized, like, oh, no, that's really, that's actually really what I want to do. And it, I, I think, though, it was just very hard for me at the time to, to think that I could, I could actually write a piece where all the material just came from me looking at a chart of notes that I'd, I'd figured out. Mm. Uh, I mean, even back then, I had changed it a bit, bit and like, uh, you know, there was things I did to it in terms of uh, modally shaping it so that, it, that, you know, like dealing with the accidentals that the system would come up with, for instance. And I mean, but, you know, for pitch, I still, I still largely use it. I mean, I've got like a whole... With the Infinity series? Yeah, yeah. I still have a whole array of other processes now that process it. There was a while there in the 90s where I would use it for rhythm. It was, I guess it, that was more for pieces where I just really wanted it, the music just to keep moving in a late medieval kind of way or something. And and, and often I would use the Infinity series to process rhythmic cells taken from 14th century music. Although even there, like, I mean, all the all the rhythms are through through composed in terms of the rhythms, but most of my pieces have some kind of canon going on. So a lot of the rhythmic complexity, if there is any, I mean, there'll be there'll be like a complex line, but that will be figured out by me. But then there'll be menstrual canon, so another line will still be doing that rhythm, but at at 
one and a third times the speed or two thirds. So you, you end up with a lot of rhythmic complexity uh, just by, again, kind of a bloody-minded system, albeit a 14th century one. And were you borrowing from those pieces in the way you mentioned earlier? No, not not referentially. Yeah, right. like I mean, and with the rhythm, like when, he, like that's the thing about late fourteenth century music. I mean, the rhythm, it's all these really extrapolated three against four rhythms, but we'll, we'll have two notes of a triplet interrupted by a duplet passage, and then then just a hanging triplet to fill in the leftover. Mm. Triplet. So like, I mean, like it, it could be Elliot Carter. I mean, like, and they had a very different notational system using different kinds of coloration that allowed them to keep, not only have these complex triple against duple or triple, triple following duple things, it, it was in sync syncopations dealing with both of them together. And then it was, I mean, that's really, and you know, by the end of the 14th century, that was really at an extreme and I think it really, though, just was the ascendancy of Dunstable and Dufay and, and wanting, like, they, I mean, part of the a fallout of even how this notation worked is it was very hard to really predict what all the note-to-note -note relationships were going to be. So, I mean, it was modal, but in Tori were perfectly pleasant because all you, all you have to do is noodle around, keep your hands on the white keys and noodle around and nothing will sound bad, as so many new age people can attest to. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I, I mean, it, it just that stuff became more systematized, especially with Dufay, and and part of the you know as soon as you had to organize things more thoroughly, um, vertically, the horizontal complexity shut down substantially. Like in this postmodal, you mean? Yeah. So when I was, yeah. but like I guess that's the thing is borrowing borrowing rhythms from from a late fourteenth century ballad will never let you know there's anything medieval going on. They're just hard rhythms. And then I would put them through infinity series kind of extrapolations. How does the infinity series work? Well, I mean, its main feature is that you, you start with a cell and the cell can be any number of pitches long, uh, or basically you can start with two numbers. Um, you just need an interval. Uh, and but the and and the feature of all infinity series is that cells will reoccur, but the series itself will never repeat itself. So even though you get all you you things keep returning, so you get all of these irregular repetitions. You'll you'll never get exact repetitions. There's never a point at which you go, okay, we're we're really back at the beginning, and it's going to be exactly the same. And it will presumably do that infinitely. I mean, there's a lot of ways to use it, though, like Nurgard would use two and three note cells, so you wouldn't actually hear them as a tune returning, whereas I would try and do things that almost would come back as a tune, but still be innocuous enough that it, it wouldn't really, that wouldn't have a rhetorical significance, that really would just be like kind of these unknowable, irregular refrains. But I mean, it makes a big difference whether you, you know, I've used up to 19 to 24 notes cells but anyways in terms of how how it actually works is let's say you had a two note cell c to e so that cell is made up of an interval going up a major third to get your next two notes you would then go down a major third from the c which would give you an a flat and you'd go up a major third from the e which would well in tempered tuning give you a g sharp or a flat too um so right there even just you know i just pulled that 
took that off the topic, but the fact that you actually have a Unis in there means you're going to get a repeated cell pretty soon too. But then, you know, so then the next thing though, is you, you go from E to G sharp or E to A flat, I guess it is that that's from the second pitch to the third pitch. So then to get the third cell, your second cell was, let's say A flat, A flat. Now the, the interval between note two and note three is an, an ascending third. So you would go down a major third from A flat, which would give you an E and then up a major third from A flat would give you a C. So now you've got a series that goes C, E, A flat, A flat, E, C. Then you have a unison. So you would repeat C, uh, E, C, which hmm. is your third cell then, you know, and on and on. Wow. News to me. Bob's your uncle. <laughs> <laughs> so that's still um, something you work with. Um, tell me a little bit about your process now. Like when you're writing a piece, you're probably writing something right now. Uh, you seem to crank out a fair amount of music despite being the busiest guy in town. Well, I'm, I'm actually finally finished a bunch of pieces that are going to get, well, two that are going to get premiered in Victoria in September. And then was working on a cello piece that just got done in London. I guess there's a lot of things that are always in play. Like, I mean, after moving to Toronto, there's been moments where I've written pieces for friends, but then even there, it tends to be situations where it's not like virtuoso classical players and things like that. And then those pieces can be strange little aberrations that I still don't think have something to do with my practice as a whole. But, but in general, somebody, some group, some organization asks me to write a piece because I don't, I've never really promoted myself. That's either usually a friend or a friend of a friend. So that, that matters to me as well. And then, then basically I just try and think about what I know about that person or the group. And, you know, that will give rise to a, you know, a general idea about like, it's almost like a kind of problem solving. Like, what is it to write a piece for this, this string quartet or this mixed ensemble or this group that's has both uh, jazz and classical people in it or whatever whatever mm -hmm. it is even if it's a piano piece it's like well what do i know about this pianist and things like that you know and then that will give rise to ideas one of which i'll more or less settle on like just a sort of a vague idea of of what the both the sound world and kind of gestural world of the piece will be and then i just produce a whole lot of pitches uh, usually using the infinity series few exceptions but then even when i don't use it like how there's been a couple of pieces that are operate like passacalias but the, it's almost the same idea though that you just have this really shut down set of pitches in this case they'll actually repeat but then other things won't but i'll still basically kind of pin down pitch and then i'll start working on texture and and that will be based on the decisions i've made formally in terms of thick and thin I think a lot, I think a lot about imagining not, not even so much how the individual would play it, but I, I, like, I never try and use all the potential of a piece of an instrument, I should say ever. In fact, on the contrary, mm. it, it might just do two kinds of things for a whole piece. For me, it's more trying to think like, what's a way of shutting down the technical possibilities of an instrument so that you can work over a certain kind of detail and that'll that'll that decision will be really early on and in some ways i think that's the kind of decision that will will actually form what the music is in terms of a, you know specifically from piece to piece more than anything and i'll try and think of it in context of what what i i know of the player and what they like to do
and that sort of becomes the piece. And then, you know, then it becomes, well, not exactly nuts and bolts, but, you know, does the piece change? How does it change? How often does it change within the whole thing? Is it thick? Is it thin? Is a part of it thick and a part of it thin? In those cases, I'll think about them both in terms of just certain sound worlds I'm interested in. I mean, I guess an, another overriding question for me, and the answer to it's different every piece because I think it, what, what I'm about to say is very sensitive to the to the actual kind of pitches, rhythms, gestures that the musician's making. But I, I will try and think if I am going to change something, and I usually do change something, I think, how can I change something where the change doesn't have any hangover of of the narrative conventions and cliches of standard repertoire? Like, I mean, that was so much an engine from the late 17th century to the turn of the 20th century. And then after that, on a gestural level, like crazy. But that whole idea that things changing, you know, right down to fast, slow, loud, soft, major, minor, like that idea that when things changed, it was because something something new had happened, that, that it was all part of a conceit, that the piece had some kind of narrative content mm-hmm. to it. Drama. Yeah, with drama being, like the cliches of drama being the way that you could have something that basically doesn't have a real kind of linguistic meaning seem like it does. So if I was going to change something, I would think, well, how can that happen where it can just sound like something different as opposed to something meaningful and if you are going to change something how can you do it in a way where someone probably isn't going to say "Ooh, what's going to happen next as this way of writing really settled in around continuity the thing i loved about continuous music is that it didn't have the sense of where are things going like in a in a projecting can't wait to get to that last page or see what the kicker is or the curtain falls kind of way and i and i mean in a way that you know, that does get back to the music I first loved because, I mean, jazz jazz is not about narrative that way. For, for as much as people want to trace expressive cliches over top of soloing, at the end of the day, it's it's a groove. I mean, and I still, I love jazz that still has a groove, even if it's a, an extrapolated one. And over top of that, people are, it's these filigree of pitches that are working in and can go for a short time or go for a long time or, you know, like there's nothing inherent in them that makes you think that there's, there's really any uh, thing it has to be. And when everyone's had enough, it stops. Same with pre-Bach music. Things just go. It's, it's that whole idea of there being a kind of a continuum, a sort of a sense that something's continuing, whether it's a groove or just a certain kind of flow of, of polyphony in early music. But then it's all about detail. So it's instead of wondering what's going to happen next, in which case I don't think you're listening very carefully to what is happening. You're, well, I said it, you're just listening to what is happening. You're either listening to ha- what's happening or you're actually just not listening and it's background music, which I'd still prefer to someone just wanting to be entertained any day of the week. <laughs> but if you are going to attend to it, you're attending to to the specificity of it. Well, that seems like a good spot to maybe do some listening. Sounds good. So we're going to listen to Contact Vault by the Bazzini Quartet and uh, see what happens.
the reason I chose that is that it's sort of the starting point of a lot of the things I was talking about right to the point of that, that melody that you heard, that is actually the melody that was the coda of that long piece that, that gave, you know, gave me writer's block in 1990. Yeah, that was, you know, and it was just like a 12 minute coda at the end of a hour and something long piece. I mean, it gave rise to a lot of pieces afterwards, but I just actually, I even just liked that tune. It was my first use of the infinity series. And uh, I guess Mark Sabat asked me to write a string quartet for the modern quartet. And I just thought it's high time to use this tune. This would have been in 96. So I guess that was the first thing was just to stick with that tune. Basically at, at the core of the piece would be a monody, even though you have four instruments playing. So then the next thing though is, well, what about that? And I thought, okay, well, that's the fact that you have four instruments kind of doing one thing. I mean, there's definitely wrinkles that got composed into it as, as you know, work on the piece developed. But I decided that the way to deal with that was to just get rid of the idea of, first of all, that the strings were a homogenous ensemble, like a family of strings. I wanted to deal with each one really particularly. So it was more like a broken consort, like a, a consort of instruments of, of different types playing this one thing all together. Mm -hmm. And also in that respect too, they're also getting rid of the idea that I was going to be exploring the potentials of the string quartet or even the violin or the cello. It was about really shutting it down. So for the bulk of the beginning of the piece, I mean, there's small changes and then there is kind of a another coda that I don't think you'll have a chance to hear. But in terms of the guts of the piece, it starts out with the first violin bowing the strings with the wood of the bow, not the hair. A thing called calendrato that's used as a special effect. And especially if you don't rosin the wood or have rosin on the strings, you get this just really airy, whistly sound because you're getting as much from the wood just going across the string as you are pitch. So there's that very soft sound, also done really softly. The second violin was high pizzicato and in pizzicato like that's where you play it with your finger or your nail a pizzicato so high that the strings barely resonate so you hear a bit of pitch but you also hear a lot of click in terms of this sort of combo of noise and pitch the viola is a little different anyway they they play natural harmonics which is where you just touch the string or don't press it down and there's a there is a timbre that goes with it a kind of a glassy timbre that that's still very particular to it so it wasn't so much noise and pitch but again this thing that's often just used as a as an effect that became the whole way of playing it and then the cello plays also with just the stick of the bow but using it as a drumstick just hitting it with the wood and yeah I mean again there are these little little rhythmic wrinkles where things come apart a little bit rhythmically but mostly the bulk of the piece is just them playing the tune in unison rhythm but with these kind of bloody-minded techniques that that slowly change like the rules change a little bit before this final coda but uh, the, the guts of it is still the, the tune and then the sound world that that brings in as much quiet noise as it does uh pitch and and that other thing that the the whole piece is is very quiet but not from them trying to play quietly just from the actual right, it just those effects are quiet exactly or yeah. those ways of playing yeah and there's also the sense of continuous music there and the, the rhythmic walking pace. Yeah, that's huge, I think, in all of my music. And it, almost to the point, I think, of me taking it for granted is that there is this sort of 
you know, like in pieces, there'll be this sort of hint of a waltz. Like it will emulate, again, usually sort of uh, more popular forms. Like in that tune, you know, there is that place where it shuts down a bit and you get that series of short, long notes sort of maybe sounding a little bit like the scotch snap in a Strathspey where the rhythm really does just start going didum, 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 dunum, dunum. The idea is that it's it's almost like it just sort of falls onto that, almost like you're just skipping for a few moments and then it goes back to staggering. But again, not about any kind of dramatic change, not a real change of pace, but just, yeah, just again, the sort of particularity to it where there's a sense of it moving, but, you know, just little differences, little pushes and pulls, little hesitations, you know, hopefully underlying the specificity of every moment. Well, it's great to hear that. Let's think about one more. Yeah, well, this is another piece that in some ways, well, in many ways, it's very different. In another way, other ways, though, it's, it, it shares a lot of the concerns that my music does in general, but it's done completely differently. It uses a whole lot of different kinds of playing and a whole lot of different kinds of players. It, it's basically a 40-minute setting of a 26 or 27 verse version of the Scottish muckle ballad Tam Lin. Yeah, maybe it'd be better to hear some of it before I say anything more. Let's let's hear it. Tam Lin.
Tamlin, performed by some longtime collaborators uh, of yours and the Array Music. Maybe you can tell us about that piece specifically, but also in, in general, the idea of collaboration in your music, because you have worked with a lot of the same people for, for many years. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, this one, we were already talking about how, for me, who asks me to write a piece, what the circumstance there is mattering so much in terms of what actually happens. And this piece is probably the poor example of that as, as a incredibly distinct creative engine. This happened mm-hmm. when Alison Cameron was the artistic director of Array Music. I mean, her programming was amazing and adventurous all the time. And then she would kind of up the ante on the adventurous side with a two or three day festival called the Scratch Festival that she ran. And I mean, it would work a few different ways. Like one year she brought in Christian Wolf to do a series of concerts, which also included him performing and improvising. In this case, she just asked me if I wanted to basically put together a concert that would involve writing a piece and then maybe finding another piece that could be done. But the one thing that she wanted was she wanted a combination of the array ensemble and improvisers. I don't think she stipulated them. I think she left that open, but I had been playing with Eric Cheneau, Ryan Driver, and Doug Tielli, who were in a few different bands themselves already, all of them amazing free improvisers, but also all of them remarkable singer-songwriters in very quirky ways. And I'd, I'd collaborated that with them by this time in some of their own projects. I had a kind of a quasi-composition project called Cow Paws, which was just the four of us, which was a subset of another group called Marmots. And with both those groups, I mean, I never really thought of, you know, maybe it is because I was so used to being asked by people to do stuff. I I found it hard to keep generating new work when it was sort of self-motivated. But, you know, I, they were people I was around with. I was playing odd electric guitar with Ryan, doing all American songbook standards, all ballads. It goes to to this day. Uh, So anyway, when Allison asked if there was some way that I could bring in this other musical element, I said, well, why don't, why why don't I make it for Calpaws, the four of us uh, with the array music ensemble. And she, uh, enthusiastically gave the go ahead for that. So then I then I had to figure out what I was going to do. What I knew is I I didn't want the music to sound like improvisers versus notated new music players. And I also knew I didn't want it to sound like it was alternating improvised sections with notated sections. So that was the, the first problem and the way it actually got solved again was very specific around these players. And so instead of just thinking of them as remarkable improvisers, I focused on the fact that they also had beautiful singing voices and that they were in a number mm. of groups where they sung. And so the the initial creative thrust of this one was thinking, well, it's going to be a song and it's going to be a really long song. There's a level on which once you get people singing, everything that happens around them becomes arrangement as opposed to the music standing for something on its own, if you, if you know what I mean. like, like there's Yeah, a, there's it's a, always foregrounded. Yeah, yeah and, and, and there's also a way that a song can kind of absorb anything, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's, it's like, you know, you can hear a singer with an orchestra or you can hear a singer with a really creative arranger or a really hackneyed arranger just with a guitar, just with a piano, with a trio. I mean, all of these things will, will matter to the experience. But there's still this funny way that in all of those cases, if it's the same singer in the same song, you might hate some, you might love some, but there's still this weird sense that all of these 
differences of color or of gesture get absorbed into the idea of, yeah, it's a song. Yeah. And I knew there would be long instrumental sections, but I also didn't want the sense of them sounding like knowable sections. And I knew I wanted it to be long just to put the song thing on its head where you're used to that being kind of a politer amount of time. So this now gets back to how much I love folk music. And this might, might have been one of the first tunes where I really did go to it as a resource. If you want long songs and you want them to be more or less in English, there is no better reservoir than uh, Scottish muckle ballads. I mean, they're written in Scots, but most of them are translated. So, I mean, Scots is very much like Old English. It's a like a Germanized pre-Norman kind of English that's developed its own history. But these muckle ballads, muckle just, is just a, a Scots dialect word for large or grand or something that just they're just really long ballads and i went for a song that i i loved from the british folk revival tam lynn which exists as a seven minute a seven fair, minute fair convention yeah, yeah. and then but then longer acapella versions by ann briggs mike watterson al lloyd under the name young tamlin mm-hmm. and it's it's a it's a little different though like they're the the woman who marries tam who's been absconded with by the fairies is Lady Margaret in the uh, Fairport one, it's Janet. So basically I compiled all the Janet versions and I came up with maybe 24, 27, something in the 20s verses. So I had a lot of verses. The next thing I did in this case is I I wrote a tune for each, a new tune for the verse. So uh, I actually wrote the tune. Already I, I had this idea that there was going to be some kind of meeting between folk music and lounge pop. So I tried to come up with a tune that had both a little bit of a nod towards a modal British folk tune, but also had some little modal twists that could also fit basically a soft pop setting. So that was there. I did use a part of it to make an Infinity series, but the Infinity series was only, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. The the real thing after that was I realized there was going to be a song. I did decide early on that except for while they were singing and I was playing along with them with the melodica, that the four of us would just improvise. My decision to do that, that was strictly based on the fact that we already did a lot of improv that was in between kind of folk and other strange tone regimes. So I, I, I could trust them to do that. If I did this piece without those guys, it would take some work to actually figure out how the improv works. Like there's there's nothing about it. Like yes, there's this free improv section where I'm where I'd be excited if someone decided they want to go because it's free, man. Like I mean, no one would be allowed to hear that if someone thought, <laughs> you know. So there was that. Then I array music at this time was made up of violin, clarinet, piano two percussion, string bass, and a conductor. But, but the conductor at the time, Henry Kacharczyk, was also an extremely talented uh, piano player. I also knew I didn't want it to be a Ray versus improvisers too. So the first thing I did was uh, extract a quartet of clarinet, violin, acoustic piano, and string bass. And then I just wrote them a remarkably long canon again using infinity series based on a cell that was taken part of from the verse i wrote for you know as the melody for the song and once they start there the first verse is in time everyone is in the same meter and it's semi-conducted by henry kacharzak although we'll tell you a little bit about that in a minute 
But once that starts, essentially their pitches change all the time based on polyphony from the Infinity series. And they're already, they already have a kind of a, a staggering, slightly out of sync sounding polyphony that they're playing. But the next thing that happens though is they just slow down. So there's basically 24 bars of rhythm. The pitches change, how they play the pitches change, but you just get it repeating, but slowing down by this increment where each repetition, uh, the value that would be a quarter note becomes a, a dotted quarter note. Or written out slowing down. Yeah, like it keeps getting slower and slower tempos. I think I'd get as slow as 40, but then, you know, just where they actually, where they count that, but then I start doubling time values and then tripling and quadrupling. By the end, a rhythm that took a page of notation takes 12 pages of notation. <laughs> and they, they just do that. They just, and, you know, but the pitches change, like how they play it, pizzicato, harmonics, tessitura on the piano, all of that stuff is done with a lot of detail through the whole expanse of it. But once they begin, they're on their own. The challenge for them is to keep trying to be as true to this slowing down by this mm -hmm. increment of a third as possible. And so everything involving those instruments is how they line up with other things is happening. So when uh, it's all written out, like they, it's all written out. Yeah. yeah. Then that left the two percussion and the conductor. And what I decided to do with them is, oh no, there's a, also a trumpet. And there's a reason I forgot the trumpet, which I'll, I'll get into, but, uh, for the two percussion and the conductor, I decided to, to have each percussionists only play vibraphone and then the conductor because the conductor in a sense was more about giving broad cues and keeping a tempo that not everyone had to worry about like when we were freely improvising we wouldn't do it the two vibes players and him did have to worry about the tempo but only a bit for reasons you'll find out but i i, I had him playing a fender Rhodes electric piano with a phaser and a and an echo on it so like in a flanger like so just this sort of really kind of psych Rhodes sound the Rhodes and the two vibraphones player, they play chord changes. So again, it was this idea like, what, what's a whole other regime of notation that has a different history to it? You know, all of these players had to have experience playing changes in other hmm. kinds of music, but again, would be between improvisation and fully notated stuff. Uh, and it was also based on the fact that, you know, I've talked about how a lot of my music is is modal uh, in usually some kind of expanded way. The way you could distill one of my favorite modes is to think of, this changes a lot, but you could think of it as, a, as an eight note mode that could be reduced to a C major seventh chord with a D major seventh chord played on top of it. So an eight, where the base of it is an eight note mode, like C, D, E, F natural, F sharp, G, A, B natural, C sharp. You know, usually that gets expanded in the pieces that aren't wanting to emulate major seventh chords. But in this case, because I thought, nah, I'm, go I'm going for it. I'm going to bring in soft pop. The two vibraphones each have major seventh chords. I mean, there's a few minor seventh chords, but basically four note pop jazz chords, a tone apart. And then the Rhodes plays both together. <laughs> the, the changes are irregular. So you might have a change, let's say D major seven over C major seven it goes for five bars and then there'll be three bars of uh, E flat major seven over or under F major seven. And then just a, a one bar of something. And there was a, another system around how those bars would happen. Uh, the electric mm -hmm. piano would play the 
downbeat of each of those groups, but it, you know, it would still be a regular. So he'd play, if it was the five, he'd play on the first beat and then five bars later, if it was, you know, that's how long the change went, he would play the downbeat of the next. So, but you'd still get him playing irregularly. And then the um, two vibes were just told that they were allowed to make a certain number of attacks, only playing two notes at a time though, within that range. So like they still could only make two attacks within five bars. So it would be less dense than if it was in one bar, obviously. So again, it was this sort of in-between prescribed and free, had this whole other world to it though that had nothing to do with folk, but maybe did have a bit to do with, you know, the the psychedelic part of the revival, but this time pushed towards the pop side. And then the improvising and singing just kind of wove through that. When when it was time for, like, Henry, the conductor, would actually count the bars, so we would be freely improvising. And then all of a sudden, he, he would go away from his playing these downbeats on the electric piano and start to beat for two bars, and that would let Eric and Doug and Ryan know it was time for them to come in with the next verse. And then for a while, while we were singing and be playing along with the melody, we would be in time with the keyboards and the mm. vibes and then improvise again, you know, cutting across all these other regimes that were going. So just to tie things up a little bit, that last piece, Tamlin, had a collaboration with people you've been working with for a while, as we mentioned. In, in general, what role does collaboration play in your work, or how do you, how do you think about that? I mean, usually it's not collaboration in the sense of something being uh, built from the ground up together. Tend to think of my pieces as being like there's still things that I concoct. Even I mean, for sure, with the thoroughness of the improvisation, there like that piece is not what it is without Ryan doing what he does and you know Doug what he does on trombone mm-hmm. or on guitar. I mean, so you're not just going to bring it to a generic chamber ensemble. And... No, but I mean, I can imagine it being a very different piece with different improvisers, and then it would be. I guess that's the thing though is is I suppose that's it's collaboration then. On even in this piece, in the sense that I'd, I'd never say, "Hey, listen to what Ryan's doing on synth. Can you can you try and do something like that with your electronics?" Like it's more a case that I would I would listen to their electronics and talk about what parts of that I think could actually be part of a new version of that piece. Mm-hmm. So it's collaborative that way. It's still though, I mean, it's still kind of traditional in the sense that it's it is still you know on some level prescriptive from me. I guess though the where where I still think of it as collaboration, and, and this has to do with I think fundamentally still working with with people who deal with notation. Like I really do think of who those people are, what they're good at, and I do try and form relationships where they bring what they have up around playing a melody or how they do that to the piece, and they're free to do. Like there's, I don't write dynamics, for instance. I don't mm. like phrasing marks. It, they really do look like baroque scores. There's one dynamic at the beginning of the piece. And that's it. And I think even the nature of the piece is, is that they put things in motion that are very much about, you know, people playing. So so even on a just a general level, there's a way that, that the music actually really consciously embraces, you know, the practice of, of playing a classical instrument that that I, I think of as a form of collaboration because I know that that's something they bring. And I... I I don't try and uh, negate it. What happens more is that there's something about the context or like, you know, the bloody mindedness of just <laughs> staying with a, a, an effect or something where it gets shut down to kind of an uncomfortable degree. Like for instance, I, 
very rarely just send a piece to someone I don't know. I want it to be someone who, where we can both talk about the music, but where I think there's actually something broader about the project that that's resonant for them. And that's why it matters to me that I'm working with friends and friends of friends. You know, that stuff can shape things then, like, you know, whether it's just certain things I'll try on a violin because I know Clemens Merkel of, you know, Quattro Bazzini isn't going to balk and I can just do it with him, knowing that it's the pieces for him to, you know, there are specific ways that, you know, Eva Goyan or, or Philip Thomas sound they make on the piano that will be, I will be thinking about that when I'm writing the piece. I don't ever think of what I do generically. Like I don't think, and I don't think of it as an ideal. And then, and then even after that, like there's things that can happen where that becomes the piece. Like I, I've had pieces done, you know, especially when I was younger, they've only been done once. There's still never enough rehearsal time. I mean, it's, it's changing now that particular performers playing pieces I wrote for them more often, you know, they're outstanding players and they're just getting more and more accurate all the time too. Mm. But, you know, there's a lot of versions of pieces I have where I was convinced by the performance. And if I read along the score with it, with the recording, it'll be massively incorrect, <laughs> but, I, but I won't matter. Right. Like I, I, it doesn't matter to the point where I, like, for one thing, I don't really remember what I wrote. And again, because my relationship to recordings and wanting to write stuff that I want to listen to, if it's creating a sound world that I'm listening to and I'm not thinking about myself, which is, I don't think about myself when I listen to any music, then that becomes the performance. And uh, like this idea that there's, I'm writing something that has some ideal performance and then I want those damn performers to do their best, even though they won't blah, 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 like all that kind of antagonism about the ideal of a performance versus its accuracy, you know, how, how deeper relationship was able to be formed. Like, to me, it's more, it's more human scale. Like I want there to be a personal relationship where people are believe in what they're doing. But if, if things screw up, they have to screw up really, really badly for me to care. Like, like if I, I feel I've, I've enacted something where people are playing and there is these senses of detail and, and uh, if it's not the detail I wrote, you know, I, I probably won't know. Right. Like there's not a right or wrong version of the piece and there's not a, a right or wrong way to apprehend it either. It's a thing I say often where, where listening is co-creative, where I've got something in motion that people's ear moves through almost like they're like they are playing it to you know, find their their way through it. And, and, you know, that encourages that where, where they're like I say, where I haven't done something that makes them go like, I wonder what's going to happen next but also where it's generous enough that they don't go like, oh, I get it. it's about uh, extreme minimalism and then shut down. I mean, I love extreme minimalism too, but I think what, where it really comes alive is when you do when you do attend to it. Like maybe you'll drift off for a, a while, but then something, you'll come back and the chiff of a sound or an attack will really get under your skin. Maybe that's a good place to, to leave it, thinking about the listener and the distinction between what's on the page and what you actually hear and privileging the, the listening experience around listening to what's there instead of what isn't there or what is incorrect yeah yeah well the page is just a means to an end and that end can be very uh very at odds with the means <laughs> <laughs> martin arnold thanks so much for being here on the show it's a pleasure thanks for having me real treat for me i'll link in the show notes to where you can find some of this music 
distribute a lot of it is on SoundCloud. Okay. Thanks a lot. That's the show, friends. Martin has given us lots of homework listening, so get thee to the library, or perhaps the interweb. You can find some of Martin's music on SoundCloud, and a quick search will yield the many recordings of his music that are currently available. The content and sound quality of this show is the sole responsibility of me, Pete Johnston. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this episode. More importantly, tell your friends to have a listen. You can find out more about me on SoundCloud or on my website, PeteJohnstonMusic.com. To close out the show, here's a piece called Cuckoo Bird, which neatly knits together Martin's interest in British folk music and contemporary composition. Performed here by Callum McSherry, Bazzini Quartet, and the University of Bristol New Music Ensemble. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon. Gonna build me Log cabin On a mountain Is a pretty bird. She wobbles as she flies. She never.
Jack of Diamonds Jack a Diamond Is a pretty bird. 
Oh. 